With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Political commentator and investigative journalist, you're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to TNT Today's News Talk, TNT TFI, TFI Fridays. I'm Patrick Kennington, your host. We've got a fantastic program uh, lined up for you today. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Really appreciate your listenership. If you're on the audio streams or if you're on the video streams, appreciate your your viewership. We're going to be joined by some special people uh, today. Very much looking forward to a conversation we're going to have with uh, a new friend from South Africa, from Johannesburg. We're going to be connecting with Kim Heller. She's an author. She's also a uh, political commentator of sorts. Uh, but she's going to weigh in on a really momentous event, historical event, which happened this week. South Africa at the International Courts of Justice. It was a, a scene that the whole world was watching and it left an indelible mark. Uh, we're going to talk to her about that, her reactions, her feelings about this and you know the more broader Palestinian-Israel uh, conflict issue. We'll talk to her about this and much, much more uh, in the first hour. In the second hour, we're going to be joined by our intrepid uh, correspondent who is currently larking off the coast of Mauritania, uh, Basil Valentine, generally staying out of trouble, but he's got some trouble to report to us of what's going on geopolitically. I'm talking about Yemen. I'm talking about Ukraine. Uh, we'll talk about that, plus Gaza and more uh, in the second hour. And then we'll also connect with our legal correspondent at the Southern District of New York Federal Court, Matthew Lee. There's some big, big cases. The Bob Menendez case is really heating up. Matthew's, of course, right in the middle of that. Uh, he's hoping to see some unsealed documents, uh, which he's been pushing for. We'll talk about that as well as the Epstein case and Hunter Biden's latest theatrical maneuver. Did it work or did it backfire? We'll talk to Matthew about this. So you get all the inside baseball from the U.S. side behind the scenes with Matthew Russell Lee from Inner City Press. I'm looking forward to that discussion uh, at the end second segment in the uh, second hour. Now, uh, on terms of big, big U.S. news, uh, biggest story right now has to be the United States and Britain. So imagine this. Uh, you think it's bad in the Middle East. You think uh, Gaza, it's bad. You've got a genocide going on. you got the United States arming it, backing it. you got the Biden administration running for cover. Everybody's running for cover, trying to patch up this disaster of a war backing Israel and one of the worst crimes against humanity in the modern era. As bad as that is, what do you do? Do you call for a ceasefire? These are the big questions that uh, try the souls of men and women in Washington, D.C. and London. And what do we do? Do we call for a ceasefire? Do we de-escalate? Normally, that's what uh, sane, sober people would do. People with a conscience, people with some kind of a moral compass. Generally, throughout history, that's what you do. Do you say, no, actually, no, 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 let's 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 amp it up. Let's amp it up. Let's get closer to World War III. Why don't we start a new war? How about that? Let's start a new war. They've done that. The United States and Britain, shoulder to shoulder, the special relationship, the coalition of the only two, U.S. and Britain, they probably got uh, the Maldives joining in there in this uh, grand coalition, maybe the Faroe Islands. I don't know, Seychelles, are they in for this or not? Who knows? Anyway, it's a pretty robust coalition, we're told, of two. The U.S. and the U.K. strike the, quote, Houthis, uh, 
uh, in Yemen. Uh, let's actually answer Allah. This is the uh, ruling party uh, who is governing uh, Yemen in the capital of Sana'a. Uh, this is what most Yemen, Yemenis uh, regard as their legal government there, but uh, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia don't, neither does Britain. They have their own one Guaido government uh, in waiting, which they want to install in Yemen. That's why they're occupying the southern part of the country. Did they not tell you about this? Is this news to you? If it's news to you, you're not following it close enough or you're not listening to the show enough. So anyway, uh, cruise missiles, missile strikes, blasts have occurred in Sanahu Data. Hodeida was already blockaded and sieged uh, by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. They starved hundreds of thousands of Yemenis over the last five or six years. Did you hear about that? No, you didn't. So anyway, the U.S. and U.K. War on Yemen. War on Yemen. They began carrying out airstrikes against Ansar Allah militias in the early hours of Friday in response to the, the quote, Houthis targeting shipping routes in the Red Sea. Now, they're not just targeting shipping routes. They're targeting Israeli Israeli sea vessels uh, who are either owned by Israel, carrying Israel cargo, flagged, even if they're flagged by another country, but providing material support for Israel so long as Israel's carrying out an illegal genocide. So the Houthis, the Yemenis have said, you stop bombing Gaza, you pause, we'll pause. So it's uh, quid pro quo, ladies and gentlemen. So Washington and London have launched their attacks with the authorization from the, not quite, there's some abstentions, the half authorization from the UN Security Council. Uh, Joe Biden decided to bypass Congress on this. Uh, I don't know, did, was it an executive order or is this under the vague uh, authorization of military force, the AUMF? Is that what this is? Uh Anyway, Congress uh, really wasn't uh, in the loop on this, and it's a bit of a problem, a bit of a constitutional crisis. Of course, that's a long-running problem in the United States. But uh, the Yemenis have pledged to support their friends in Gaza till the very end. And they've launched multiple drones, missiles targeting merchant vessels, which they believe are uh, providing material support or owned uh, by Israel or Israeli businessmen. And so they're sanctioning Israel, basically, and they're backing it up with hard power, something the United States and Britain have done many times, recently, in fact, against Iran and against Syria and others. It's something that Israel does, doesn't even go to the UN Security Council, it just does it. If Israel wants to do something, bomb their neighbors, assassinate anybody, they just go ahead and do it. They don't put it up for a vote in the UN Security Council. I believe that Russia and uh, other members, probably China have abstained on that, so they did not authorize it. So why do they abstain? Why didn't they vote no? Well, it's a, it's a touchy issue. Uh, the international shipping lanes, goods and services, one has to be very careful where they weigh in on this. I suppose the safe route was to abstain and let the Yemenis get on with it. So the Yemenis, are basically one of the poorest countries in the region. The reason they're one of the poorest countries in the region is because they've been absolutely uh, obliterated uh, by their rich Gulf Arab neighbors and the U.S., Britain, and other partners who decided to pile in and destroy Yemen beginning in March of 2015 under President Barack Obama. It's one of the many wars started by Obama. Now, a lot of this is just show, uh, a lot of Colorful cruise missiles. You've probably seen the clips on CNN and Fox. Very impressive. 
got the footage of you know the rockets going out of their hatches on the uh, U.S. Uh, destroyers and frigates, uh, jets being launched. Britain's getting in on the act. They probably have like four or five planes that are able to fly missions anyway in that region. Maybe they fired off a couple of cruise missiles. Who knows if they landed and hit anything? Maybe a barn, maybe a wedding, maybe a farm. Maybe it just landed in a field like it did with so many of them that they fired against Syria, if you remember that, in April of 2018. So if my memory serves me correctly. Uh, so some of these may have landed. Some of these may have landed on targets. Some may have not. But uh, if you're listening to the U.S. media, you're watching the U.K., you're seeing the tabloids in the U.K., it was a resounding success. We gave those those Houthis a bloody nose, says the U.S. and the U.K. That'll serve them right to mess with us. Uh, I don't think so, uh, because you've been messing with Yemen for the last nine years. And what happened over that period, over the last nine years, the Yemenis went from wearing sarongs and sandals and Kalashnikovs, literally uh, firing at Saudi jets uh, with old RPGs, Soviet RPGs. They've gone from that to having a, an incredibly well-organized and capable fighting force uh, and combined uh, conventional force with some air uh, ground and naval and they're very effective in their own neighborhood and i don't think uh the united states and britain are going to have a great success here uh because they haven't over the last eight nine years so all yemen's done is get stronger and larger so rather than come to the negotiation table and say to the yemenis hey we've got a problem here we can't have this we can't be rerouting or shipping uh around south africa so you know, what do you want? Now, the Yemenis are going to say, well, why don't you pressure Israel to pause on the massacre of the Palestinian civilians in Gaza? Why don't you stop the genocide or at least pause it for a month or so while we work this out? That's not even an option for the United States because they're all in on the war. They're all in on the bombing. They're all in on the genocide despite what Antony Blinken and these other uh, emissaries who speak with forketh tongues, despite what they say, they're all in on the war. And they don't regard Palestinian life as anything valuable or worth saving or worth even considering. It's completely dismissed out of hand. That's the fact of the matter. That's what we're looking at. And for that reason, they've opened another war front. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute. A great foreign policy success. For Washington, once again, chalk another one up. Let's take a break here with TNT, today's news talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host, and we'll come back and connect our next guest, Kim Heller, on the other side. Looking forward to this conversation. Stay right there. TNT Radio's Joe Hoff. Just a terrible situation there, and Biden was behind it, pushing these arms, pushing billions of dollars over there. We don't know where that money went. I'll bet you money. I'll bet you a huge percent uh, went. I bet you more than fifty percent didn't go to the uh, to the people or to the war. Uh, it went to people's pockets, kind of like what we have in in uh, Palestine. Uh, with the U.S. since since well under Biden, uh, Trump shut this down, thank God. But under Biden, Obama, they started sending billions over to. Uh, that part of the world these people are, have been after israel forever and, and uh, supported by iran and billions of dollars going their way and uh, to help them not uh, you know basically uh create chaos in the middle east terrorism and and we saw what happened earlier this year about a month ago uh, the two of them went 
attack in Israel and the death and destruction, rape and kidnapping, more than 240 people kidnapped. Joe Hoft on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. God's truth is enduringly true throughout all the generations. It transcends culture. The church is always going to be an embattled people. If it's swimming with the tide, it's not being the church of Jesus Christ. Look to the past, learn from the past, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. The entire state of California ordered to stay at home. That's 40. California has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches. Gavin Newsom's executive order threatens jail time and a thousand dollar a day fine. Government stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. When I went into the White House, when I sat in on the task force meetings, was a shocking level of gross incompetence. The mortality rate from the virus was 0.2%, you know, 99.8% survival, rather than the 3 or 4% mortality that the, the people were saying at the time. The culture and the understanding of the people of Grace Church has always been, not only do you obey government, but you honor government. Thousands of people in the streets, but you can't have church. The hypocrisy of letting people riot it helped us all understand one thing. This is not what they say it is. By meeting, we're testifying the government has no jurisdiction here. I was arrested and driven to a maximum security prison. The government has obviously uh, turned up the heat on churches. My daddy. <laughs> when the churches fall silent, the only religion left is the state. We needed to make a biblical statement because we always put ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. LA County threatened Pastor John MacArthur with jail time and arrest. We were going to be sued. They wanted Grace Church shut down. We wanted to go on the offensive and attack the health order as unconstitutional. This wasn't about health and safety. This was all about control and opposition to religious freedom. As the government gets more corrupt and more corrupt, snitches get rewards. Its totalitarian control has to increase. And you have to have a mask on. And as they shut down any attacks against them, this is not about freedom or personal choice. The last thing standing is going to be the church. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT, today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We're here in the first hour of this live broadcast. Really appreciate you guys joining us, especially our community in the TNT chat room. You guys are in there. It's bustling as ever. It looks like the numbers have been building up to have over 100 people there already in the first hour. So get some more people. That's where you want to be. If you're listing on a URL or an app, just move over into the TNT chat room. You see a little red bubble uh, in the lower right-hand corner of your screen. That's where you want to be. There's a great bunch of people in there. I really appreciate you guys for all of your support and activity. Now, let's talk about something that happened this week, which was absolutely historic. I'm going to bring on to the stage a very special guest. who's going to join us from Johannesburg, South Africa. And uh, she is a political commentator, an independent uh, journalist and author. Kim Heller is joining us on the line right now. Hello, Kim. Thank you for coming to TNT today. 
Thank you. And thank you for having me on your platform. I have great admiration for you and this platform. It's a, it's a privilege. Thank you. No, the pleasure is all ours, uh, Kim. And I'm just going to start off by saying, Kim, uh, uh, it was a very big moment uh, on Thursday uh, as the world tuned in. Uh, the United Nations Web TV, uh, their servers nearly broke uh, because of the amount of people around the world who've tuned in. Maybe the most viewed broadcast, live broadcast on that platform in a very long time, if not of all time. Uh, and this was South Africa making their presentation to the International Courts of Justice uh, in The Hague on behalf of the people of Palestine. And it really was a damning indictment for the state of Israel uh, and really just showing in, in, a, in such an eloquent and also a really thorough way. Uh, I was, many were surprised uh, at how well it was put together because we're all juggling all of this data and information. We're seeing quotes, news articles, how can you order any of this, put it together in some kind of coherent fashion because there's just too much. But the South African team did it. And I think they did it extremely well. And it was a very emotional moment for Palestinians uh, as well as South Africans. Tell us about this event, uh, why it's significant and how it, uh, how it made you feel personally as well. But go ahead, Kim. Yes, thank you. I feel uh, for once, although I'm sitting in a dock, uh, South Africa is experiencing load shedding at the moment. We've sold a lot of our coal to Europe. So um, please forgive my poor visuals. But uh, yesterday, I think, was a proud moment for South Africans across the country because we have experienced, uh, well, not myself, but black South Africans have experienced uh, generations upon generation of uh, suppression under apartheid. And I think we see the parallels very strongly between what we call apartheid South Africa, which thankfully is in large part um, a, a part of our history rather than our present, but Israel, which we believe is an apartheid entity. So I think it is very historical and poetic almost in terms of justice that of all the countries in the world, it is South Africa who brought this application to um, the, the International Court of Justice, because Black South Africans in this country experienced many of the symptoms and uh, acts of great inhumanity committed by settler colonial, colonial forces. So in South Africa, it's people like me who came from Europe, who came from other parts of the world, and we have settled here and what we've done in that process, particularly under apartheid, is subject the indigenous people, black South Africans, to uh, be in cramped spaces, have less rights to and access to services and um, provisions. And, and we see that echoing very much in, in, in Palestine, where uh, uh, Jews settled there but they didn't settle there on an empty land. They settled there very much like in South Africa, in a place where other people were. And what they did was they have subjected the Palestinians to apartheid-like conditions, which we're all familiar with. In fact, uh, our deputy minister uh, was recently in the country, actually before uh, this great um, recent massacre, and she wept in front of international media to say that she has, as an African woman, she has suffered through generations, her whole life, 
she's been subjected to violence, to structural violence, to racism, to oppression, to exclusion from the economy and basic services, to violence. But she has never seen anything like what Israel is doing to the people of Palestine. I think that was in Ramallah. And um, we also recently had our, our former minister of, of uh, defense, who's actually a Jewish individual, saying that he condemned so strongly what has happened in Palestine, not only today, but historically, because it is worse than what we experienced here. So we are historically with Palestine. I think there is a historic relationship of solidarity. South Africa is only free today politically because of the international solidarity we got. So it's in our hearts that we stand with Palestine. And I think yesterday what the world saw was the, you know, there's an expression, uh, the emperor is naked, you know, at, at last, I'm probably referring badly to a story that I do revere. But I think yesterday what's, what we saw is that the clothes of, of liberty and justice and a free state that uh, Israel has spoken of and uh, I even heard somebody speaking about Israel as the democracy in the Middle East. I think that all fell, the robes finally fell off for the world to see. And it, it's just revealed itself as a state that is really uh, in violation of human rights. And as far as our team is concerned, I think what is uh, I was proud of is that South Africa is often seen as this African third world country but you see from the legal team that was assembled, we rival the best in the world. And when I looked, my last point on this is when I saw the shocking and uh, terribly inane presentation by the Israel team today, I thought we have really got our top people to represent um, the country. And in, fact, and in fact, humanity as a whole on this very important time. No, I have to agree. I, I got up at uh, 2, 2 in the morning, uh, my time here in America, to watch the uh, the Israeli uh, presentation. And uh, I I found it to be very, uh, the, the, it was kind of nondescript, uh, uneventful, and uh, with including a few of the sort of common tropes that we've heard recycled uh, over the last couple of months from their officials and our mainstream media, not a whole lot there. In comparison, uh, it's really, I mean, I'm standing as a uh, objective observer even if i didn't have any uh preferences to uh which side i think is in the right or the wrong uh there's no comparison to what was done on thursday uh and what the world saw and felt on thursday and then what came uh just this morning on friday so uh is that going to be reflected in how the judges are going to vote on this and you know whatever the decision is i think we can all agree kim that uh this was just the fact of the the moment on thursday where the world uh could hear the story of palestine through through the lens and through the voice of uh of south africans of the the irish uh, uh barrister as well and uh the, the british voices and collectively i think that's very powerful in fact that's the comment that some palestinians made that they were very moved by hearing the voice of other countries because it's very rare kim that you can have a for a forum a public forum where the where it's getting full focus on the world in an official institution condemning israel this doesn't happen actually it's very rare there's been a lot of un resolutions but to do it so thoroughly 
uh, how it was done yesterday. This to me is unprecedented. I, th I think people don't realize what a major moment in history this is and to, to speak up for the Palestinians, which nobody, not even their Gulf Arab <laughs> neighbors uh, uh, want, are ready to do uh, in, in, in this way, Kim. I, I think that was something that I think is very striking. But uh, yeah, your thoughts. You know, I, I think I'm a, I call myself an old veteran in terms of struggle politics. And I think that I've seen a lot and I've, as I've grown older, I've grown more patient about struggles. And, um, you know, the, the Palestinian struggle is long in the making. And I think what so many people in the world don't know is that it started 75 years ago, not on 7th of October. And I think that uh, unfortunately we're seeing uh, history brought to us, but on the graves of 30,000 innocent, in most cases, Palestinian people. I mean, half of which are women and children. But I think that people, it's brought to the world attention, the atrocities that have taken place in that small piece of land for so many years, um, and the world has remained silent. But I think, uh, Patrick, what gives me hope, and when I've seen struggles in South Africa, is that the people always stand with with justice. They know what justice looks like. They know what injustice looks like. And unfortunately, what I've learned in my years is that often the 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 rule of law doesn't not necessarily mean uh, that there'll be justice. So I think justice is more powerful than law. And I think that if the International Court of Justice does not rule in favor of this very tight case. Uh, then I think they are going to be exposed to the same reputational damage as Israel, the conspirators, the US and others who have stood by and watched innocent children and women die in this great massacre. And um, But it, it's going to take a little bit longer than we think. I think we are where the truth is unfolding. I see. I think we're seeing this happening at a very interesting time of our history, when the geopolitics of the world, I think, are more fluid than they've been for a long time. And I think that gives us an opportunity to see a new blend of uh, countries emerging, activists emerging, activists for justice standing around and demanding a new world order. So I believe if the US, the Security Council, the UN, um, Israel, and those complicit in, in the grave acts of terror, if not genocide, which we are seeing at the moment, shame on them, because the people will move ahead of that. And um, I think hopefully this will show a little bit more about people power coming into effect where governments are lagging behind. Absolutely. And uh, the other the other thing, I think, g give us also a little bit of a picture, because a lot of people, I mean, there's been some horrible things said about South Africa from U.S. politicians, from the Israelis. They, I think the Israelis were calling them the uh, legal arm of Hamas or some, or legal, a ter terrorist legal group or something like that. And then the U.S. basically dismissing uh, the case out of hand or application out of hand immediately without even reading the brief, of course, without merit, just very disrespectful. Um, because a lot of Americans, Kim, who aren't au fait really with the history and the context of this, uh, will think that, oh, South Africa's a political opportunists. They're just grandstanding to cause trouble or whatever. Uh, the, the connection between Palestine and South Africa goes back a very, very long way. If you can kind of give us a little bit of 
background on that and perspective so people understand that this isn't a, a new relationship at all. But uh, go ahead. I think South Africa has been very um, solid in terms of its uh, historical solidarity with Palestine. And, um, you know, I think one of the, the greatest quotes I hear, and I always, no matter how what I do, I always misquote it, but Malcolm X saying, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. And I'm horribly, as a writer, I always butcher that quote. But I think it gives a sentiment of what South Africans feel, having gone through such, such injustice, that we must stand for people everywhere, that we cannot be free entirely until the people of Palestine are free. And that was uh, spoken far more eloquently than, than my words by our former president, Nelson Mandela, who said, we will not be free in South Africa until Palestine is free. And that's a very beautiful quote. And I think what's so interesting is that at a time when a lot of the Western world didn't stand with South Africa under the most vicious, vile system of apartheid, um, like America, well, they did, I suppose, to, in the end. But Israel actually furnished um, the South African apartheid government with, uh, apart with weapons to fight innocent black citizens in the street. And uh, so I think there's that sense that this is not our friend. Despite a South African government having strong ties with Israel still economically, there's been a very powerful um, history of solidarity between South Africa and Palestine. And, Palis and South African, the South African government has been very instrumental in making sure that Israel wasn't represented on the UN and in other forums. So I think in some regards, it's been very true to its, um, its, its, its ethos of international solidarity. Um, I must say that in South Africa at the moment, I think people must see the move by the South African government as quite courageous because the government, the ANC, is facing an election in five to six months' time. We are in a country with a very strong Zionist lobby, and I think there's going to be a lot of pressure against the government at its most vulnerable point. So I do believe that the government's the stance of, South, of the South African government is one of principles because we're going to lose. Already there's threats against South Africa economically. I think we're going to struggle um, in terms of our relationships with certain Western powers. So I think the government must be commended for a strong mode. And I think that the 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 I think it's almost, a, as you say, a very disrespectful response from both Israel and America, as if South Africa is a nation that must just shut up and not do anything. And I think we've shown our weight in the world, uh, if not economically, but on issues that, that are moral. And in the end, I think history will judge us well, as well as those who have stood uh, for Palestine. I think it's very important as well because uh, you know you look at uh, European countries, you look at the United States, the G7. Uh, they do lay out a type of a moral uh, agenda, a moral banner. This is how they get uh, people and allies to coalesce uh, around different uh, agendas that they have, uh, that they share certain values. They call them European values, or they call them Judeo-Christian values, or they call them the rules-based international order values. And they get people to coalesce, and that's a big part of the buy-in uh, of how you wield influence uh, and power on the world stage. And it's really important, and uh, I believe it's as, uh, it's right up there with economic and military power, uh, is the soft power. 
And so I see South Africa by doing this uh, within the African continent, just within the continent, taking a, a, a real lead in, in Africa, this massive continent on the planet, uh, and now a member of BRICS, central member, founding member of BRICS, the BRICS network, which is very much like the G7 or the G20 in terms of uh, international network of countries. I see South Africa really making a play, a stepping up and saying, oh, we're ready to lead on important issues. And I think the key is what you said, Kim, putting principle over politics because they will suffer. There have been threats of reprisals. They're, they do stand to lose uh, on a number of different fronts because of this. And then dirty tricks behind the scenes. We all know what happens at these types of, um, with these types of affairs on the international stage. So um, that to me is impressive. And I think that will inspire other countries uh, to maybe make similar decisions and similar moves and knowing that they will get the backing of South Africa, especially the in your neighbor African neighborhood, the king of South Africa, um, if they do choose to go down that path. That's really important uh, in the international system. And I'm not going to discount that at all. I, th I think people really underestimate the power of that. But um, I don't know your thoughts are on on the uh, South Africa coming into BRICS and and also the their orientation with the Middle East and Asia, I, I can only think this is going to help them. My my personal feeling. Yes, I think it will. I wanted to address one of the questions that you asked before, and then I I forgot about Israel uh, supersizing the relationship between and and the U.S. as well supersizing the relationship between Hamas and South Africa. And I think that I see that as a narrative that is start is trying to make out South Africa to be the villain. And we see it's a classic response of Zionist focused uh, regimes and supporters to make the people who are actually trying to do good uh, into the villains and um, rather than being the victims. And we saw that, I mean, throughout the testimony today, how Israel tries to position itself as a victim, as the bad People. And I just wanted to make a point, I may just go back for a moment, about how Nelson Mandela, probably one of the most, uh, most moral politicians the world has ever seen, was described as a, as, a, as a terrorist for so long. And, you know, this even this classification as, of Hamas as a terrorist organization, rather than a resistance organization, to me is problematic. Because the ANC government as well, for three decades, it tried to fight against apartheid, against uh, black people being thrown out of the economy, off their own lands, into the most dreadful environments, deprived of economic conditions, of opportunities, uh, of given a schooling that was inadequate, also hardly access to electricity and, and water infrastructure. And it was only after three year, three decades that Nelson Mandela said, we have tried everything to plead with the white man to give us uh, dignity and, and equal rights in this world, in this country. And, you know, I think to classify Hamas as a terrorist organization so easily is problematic when we're seeing the terror actually being um, done by the very same people who are calling themselves victims. I mean, even that came out very strongly in today's situation. Anyway, 
back to step back to your uh, to your question, I was saying earlier that I do think there's a new world order. I think that you correct completely in your assessment of the geopolitics of the BRICS uh, consortium becoming ever strong. You've seen the increase in membership. I think that is significant. I think what's also significant is that with some of the the newer, younger African leaders, we're seeing a an intolerance of colonial power that still is in play on the African continent. The French have been marched out of the colony, Burkina Faso. I mean, it's very interesting that crude oil has just been found in that country. So we look with interest Mm -hmm. about the political developments there and how America will and other powers will now try to become involved. But we have this... um, the leader of the country at the moment, Burkina Faso, is saying, I'm not interested. Africa, it's time for Africa to build. And I think a partnership between Africa and some of the Middle Eastern countries could be very, very powerful. I think it could shift the balance of powers, especially if you have African leaders who are saying enough is enough. You know, we are the richest continent in terms of mineral wealth and other resources. We will now take control um, over those. I think it, it's, I'm optimistic that, that that will shift things. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a break right now with TNT. And when we come back, I want to uh, expand on that uh, point you made there. Uh, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. That's an interesting discussion. I think it deserves a little more depth and insight. So we're going to go back with Kim Heller, who's joining us on the right line right now, political commentator, author from Johannesburg, South Africa. Stay tuned with TNT, today's news talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be right back after these messages. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. I can't overemphasize how important it is not to be excited about last week's Epstein drops. We haven't learned anything of much value from them. In fact, all the valuable information, all the videotapes, the client list, etc., is still under lock and key at FBI headquarters, controlled by FBI Director Christopher Wray. This blackmail information gives Ray as much power as his crooked, corrupt predecessor, J. Edgar Hoover, who blackmailed every president under whom he served and half of D.C. to boot, if you're to believe the stories. And make no mistake, that's exactly what this is, blackmail material. That's why Jeffrey Epstein had security cameras in every nook and cranny of every house he owned. That's why he had hundreds, if not thousands of hours, of video recordings of very prominent people with underage girls and allegedly boys. Whether it was CIA or FBI, MI5 or MI6, Mossad or several of these, doesn't matter. The fact is, Epstein was running an intelligence community honey trap. And the fact is that the real material will never see the light of day. If you doubt this, consider the coincidence of Epstein fixer Michael Sitnik having his servers stolen just the preceding weekend. There are no coincidences. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Hi, I'm Susan Lucci. I never thought about heart disease until I had my own heart event. I had a a 90% blockage in my main artery and a 75% blockage in the adjacent artery. I received two stents in my arteries, stents developed through research funded by the American Heart Association. Those stents saved my life. Learn more about the American Heart Association's life-saving work at helpheart.org. Speaking on the issues that impact, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. 
Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. We're still in hour number one of this live broadcast. Uh, joining us on the line right now from Johannesburg, South Africa, uh, author, political commentator, Kim Heller. Is joining us right now, we're talking about and getting her reaction as well uh, from the historic moment where South Africa came to the International Courts of in The Hague yesterday and made the most incredible presentation uh, in defense and standing for the Palestinian people, calling for an end of the genocide that is going on there, invoking the Genocide Convention. They were the first to step forward, file their application, and now it's gone into the legal process. The presentation was historic, to say the least, and it was very moving for a lot of people uh, around the world, especially people to see the uh, South Africans defending the Palestinians in a way that nobody has defended them yet uh, on the planet. So that was something in itself. Before the break, uh, Kim, uh, you talked about the uh, the historical comparison between the ANC uh, and Hamas and how Hamas is designated as a terrorist organization by the United States, uh, by Britain, by the EU. Uh, by some of the European states as well, and how that's potentially problematic, very problematic, in fact. Uh, the same with Hezbollah uh, in South Lebanon. This is another liberation movement uh, that was born out of an occupation in South Lebanon, so very similar to Hamas. And when we look at this, looking back at history, there's a lot of other potential examples for this as well, but let's just take the ANC-Hamas comparison. Uh, Hamas is regarded as a terrorist organization. Therefore, it, they've made an excuse not to speak to them, not to have dialogue, not to talk, only to have war. Uh, this all sounds familiar to you, doesn't it, In South, with South African comparison history? But the results uh, speak for themselves. And shouldn't we be looking at the long arc of history? Go ahead, Kim. Yes, I mean, you know, who, who we define as a terrorist and... Um the villain or the victim uh, is something that, um, you know, is not usually a representative of the dynamics. And that's why I think what I was saying earlier was that I think the robes fell off Israel yesterday with a very comprehensive presentation about the ills of what has been going on, not only uh, in the last 90 days, but historically for, I think it's almost 75 years. And uh, I think for the first time, people are sick are the illusion of Israel being a democracy and a fair and uh, uh, equitable society that looks after its citizens and the and its people uh, has been um, has fallen. And uh, the classification, you know, the ready classification of of the good guys and the bad guys, I think, has been totally destroyed. And we're speaking earlier about how Nelson Mandela was described as a terrorist. I mean, even well after he was president of South Africa, the United States still had him on the terrorist list. But this is a man who actually em embraced his former oppressor being the white regime and white people and said, you have a place in our society. Um, let us, he extended his, his hand of peace to the former white uh, oppressors of the nation. Sadly, in South Africa, and that would be a conversation for the future, is that the white man in South Africa didn't extend his, his arm fully, and we still have a very unequal society. And that in itself is a lesson to the Palestinian people um, that uh, after, after these terrible conflicts, what does freedom mean? 
And even South Africa, we speak about ourselves as a democratic state, but we're not. We have the, the black uh, South African still has a tiny share of the land. And I think that's why you were saying earlier, it's in a very emotional um, story, the Palestine story for the people of South Africa. And it's because uh, the black indigenous person in South Africa can relate fully to what's happened in um, the, the state of the state of Palestine. And what I do like about the um, South African application, and it's really worth reading for all your viewers who haven't uh, cast their eyes fully across it, is that not only does it document what's happened now, but it goes back in great detail to tell the story of oppression. It's a story that black South Africans know too well in South Africa. And I was listening to some of the feedback last night and there were black South Africans weeping actually to say, this has triggered so many memories of uh, our oppression and uh, what we had to go through. And as I said, what's being experienced in, in Palestine is, is far worse. Um, and yeah, I mean, Israel to me is just the terrorizing force. And I do hope they're convicted of genocide. Those, I think it's clear for, everybody to see the fact that we even have to come to a court of law to make that determination, I think is actually a sad indictment of, of us, of our society as a whole. I remember, Patrick, you did a, 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 I think a month after the atrocities in November, you said it's been a month now and the world is so silent. How can we allow this to happen? And I never thought I'd be having this conversation with you two months later and nothing's changed. The world is standing by while this violence is going on every day. And now we have an opportunity for people to say stop. And yet we have Western powers still resisting, still attacking South Africa as if we the villains rather than the uh, people committing such atrocities. You know, I think we're living in a very warped moral universe. And I want to quote, uh, just to add to what you said, Kim, there, uh, ex-South African intelligence minister, uh, Ronnie Kasserils, uh, who had visited the Palestinian uh, territory, said this is much worse than apartheid. The Israeli measures, the brutality, make apartheid look like a picnic, uh, he says, the former South African minister. He says, we never had jets attacking our townships. Uh, we've never had sieges that lasted for month after month. Uh, we never had tanks destroying houses, armored vehicles, and police using small arms to shoot people. Not on this scale, he said. So this is interesting. That was a comment made uh, actually in The Guardian, uh, UK newspaper. So I think it's important to have these reflections, uh, even though it's years later, of uh, people who had served uh, in the previous governments as well to make that comparison, because it's almost like when you're calling uh, Israel's system of apartheid uh, in 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 Palestine, Bantustan system, or however you want to describe it, it's actually much much worse, much more brutal, and much more insidious when you add the militarized component to it. I don't think people understand the industrial scale of what life is like in the occupied territories, the the violence. The, uh, the the hemming in populations, circling them with walls, and then attacking them with U.S. weapons. I mean, this is just something else. It's uh, it's uh, it's really on another level, I think, uh, and, and probably is terms of where the world is at, Kim. Uh, this is a, a real blight on the global landscape, I think, and I I, I dare say I, I think we're seeing the first rays of light 
come through. Uh, I, I hope I hope that's what's what's going to happen. But to go ahead, Kim. Yes, no, I hope so. I think what you say is very important, and I think largely, although it wasn't at that violent, physical, ongoing level, um, Black South Africans experienced very much uh, what you're describing because township areas were restricted. P black people were taught told where to go. Um, a, a father, a black father of children, no matter how educated he may have been, although education was um, restricted to him, he could be told by a young white boy, you are not allowed in this area. And he would be imprisoned. He would, you know, if he was found in a so-called white area. And I think sometimes we we don't, you know, we see physical, we see violence and bombs and we say that's violence, but there's great violence in uh, uh, in the structural systemic violence of an apartheid system, which we witnessed both in South Africa and in Israel, of a child not being able to get medical facilities in a normal day, of being deprived of education that will take their lives further, of being stuck in a tiny cramped environment that leads to so many social and cultural uh, ills and deprivation. You know, this is an ongoing thing. And I think uh, certainly the level of violence in South Africa, I mean, people were mowed down in streets. We had in 1976 young children who didn't want to speak English and were oppressed, uh, speaking about the oppression of the system day to day, were just mowed down in the street. So we've certainly seen a, a, a lot of violence. I think what happens, and if we reflect on the world generally today, is that we, you know, we the, the violence that we're seeing, the genocide that we're seeing now in Sudan, that the UN has still failed to address. I mean, there's a current crisis going on now, and they have yet to address the genocide that took place in 2000 and, uh, two, 2003 and 2008. You know, Patrick, it's a very worrying state that you wonder who's going to stand up for the rights of people, especially if it's happening in parts of Africa and in the Middle East. Um, perhaps, let me say, uh, where the victims uh, or the people being oppressed are not white people. Um, we, 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 we're seeing a very different response from the world. And that's, um, yeah, I think we're going to be judged on that as our, as our world unfolds, gets lighter or gets darker. And as I'm saying that with my, my power failure in South Africa, I can see I'm getting darker and darker. I hope I do survive for the next few minutes. No, that's uh, that's absolutely correct, and and you know it's uh, worth reminding as you started talking about Darfur uh, and some of these other uh, situations in the world, uh, other genocide cases. Uh, Yemen uh, comes to mind. The brutal siege uh, of Yemen over the last seven or eight years, which has been imposed by the U.S., its allies, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and others, uh, has caused uh, innumerable deaths in that country. Very poor country, uh, which is put under a massive amount of uh, pressure uh, in order to, I don't know, uh, remove the government, you could say, uh, and partition that, that country in two. There's no statute of limitations to for that, Kim, and it almost gives me a little bit of hope that uh, by pushing this case out in the way that in the dramatic fashion that South Africa has and getting the world's attention uh, on this issue, everyone focusing on Gaza, Palestine, um, that maybe some countries might revisit some of these live cases like Yemen and hold to account 
these global powers that have imposed these sort of brutal sieges uh, on other countries uh, in recent history. Because again, the statute of limitations uh, for cr these crimes against humanity for genocide, there is no statute of limitations. Uh, ideally, you'd want to impose it early to prevent it. But, you know, if in the event that you don't, uh, in, in retrospect, holding people to account is very, very important. And it just hasn't been any of that to date. But, uh, yeah, your final thoughts, Kim, before we wrap up the segment. Go ahead. Yeah, I think it's very disappointing. You know, I think that um, we're seeing that world, the bodies that we've put in place to try and bring about world justice are very inefficient and impotent. I mean, we see that with the United Nations. I think what a disappointment. We're seeing that with the African Union, where where this body is certainly not standing up for the well-being of African people. And to some extent, uh, you know, I'm hoping that perhaps I'm idealistic, but the power of ordinary citizens will fuel us and um, help us bring about justice. I think just a clo my closing note on the situation in Israel, I think uh, whatever happens with the outcome, because the storm may have to go to The Hague and the, the US will make sure nothing goes further. I think South Africa's tried. I think people across the world have tried. I think hopefully we're going to see people less ready to uh, engage with Israel and its um, conspirators. And eventually people power, I think, you know, that's probably what's going to save us. I think we, we, we around the world, citizens by millions and millions of people have marched in favor of the people of Palestine and our governments remain absolutely still. This conspiracy of silence is actually a mark of great in immorality. So I think, um, you know, maybe maybe in time, as I said, it's going to take a bit of time um, and patience, but I think the power of citizens in the end will triumph. Yeah, and the power of the word is not to be underestimated, and uh, just the act of of speaking, uh, as these uh, gentlemen and ladies have uh, in the international courts of justice, and speaking to not just the bench, and that was a powerful scene too, because normally in the UN, when you have these sort of any word spoken against um, Israel, the delegation will get up, or the Americans even will get up and walk out if anybody says anything untoward about uh, impugns the character of the United States on the. UN level, they just stand up and they leave. But you can't do that in the international courts of justice. It's contemptuous behavior. So the Israeli delegation had to sit and listen to that too. And I think that's also going to have an impact because it, I think the penny dropped at that point because uh, I know people in Israel, it's a heavily propagandized uh, society and media. And a lot of them are not even fully aware or compass mentis of how the story is actually put, is put together in, in, in the reality of it. They just don't know. And, and I think that was a powerful thing as well. I think that South Africa has put on the record there for the world for israel for the world as well i think it will do a great service uh going forward to see that on the historical record kim so we uh we have a lot to be hopeful for but as you said kim it's going to take a very long time this is only the beginning of a very long and painful process which could take years if not decades but let's hope it just takes uh, a shorter period of time, especially for the people who are suffering uh, the most in the occupied territories. Thank you, author, political commentator from South Africa, Kim Heller. Thank you for joining us on TNT. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Patrick and team.
Our pleasure. Our pleasure. There she goes, ladies and gentlemen. Look, top of the hour news headlines are coming up. And on the other side, we've got a lot more news, a lot more analysis internationally and in the United States. Basil Valentine, Matthew Russell Lee from Inner City Press. It's all coming up in the next hour. So you want to stay right there. Don't go away. <laughs> 